got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. that. You don't got time for that. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's happening? Welcome in to another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson, and I am solo. I'm all alone. Adam has officially left the nest, and I'll have you covered from here for the, I don't know, foreseeable future. Maybe we'll have somebody else in here in the coming days, coming weeks. Who knows? But for now, I got you covered here. And it is almost decision time for what needs to happen with NBA decisions. The deadline for making decisions, whether you're staying in the draft or coming back, is tomorrow at 11.59 p.m. Eastern time. So 10.59 p.m. Central time. And there are obviously a good amount of players who... You know, we're kind of waiting their decision on. The first one and most obvious is Jalen Wilson. He was on the team last year, won the title and everything. Might have heard of him. He seems to be entrenched in this process, going through workouts, and is taking this thing to the very end. KU is also waiting on the decision from Kevin McCuller, the transfer from Texas Tech, who already said that if he comes back to college, he is coming to the University of Kansas. He's still in the draft process. He has yet to announce whether... He is coming back to school or going into the NBA. So kind of similar situation as Jalen Wilson. And I guess technically you could go down the line too and talk about guys that are maybe the backup plans, so to speak, where, you know, if Jalen Wilson and Kevin McCuller come back, you're full up on scholarships. But if one of them goes or both of them end up staying in the NBA draft, then all of a sudden you're going to be looking to fill those spots pretty last minute with some guys. And that could depend who is making their decision, right? Like Courtney Rainey is still in the NBA draft process. Could he come back and decide that he's going to pick a school? And and I don't know how much those things are correlated um, where it's like, you know, if I'm going to come back and transfer, but I'm going to end up at X power five school that is fine versus if I'm going to come back and transfer and have the opportunity to play at Kansas, like those are going to have different weights of how I'm viewing those versus potentially staying or going into the NBA draft. So a lot of decisions we're still waiting on here. And, you know, I on one hand, in the case of of Jalen mainly and, and Kevin McCuller as well, though, the longer this goes on, the more it, it makes you think that they're trying to squeeze every visit and second of time out of this thing to wait as long as possible for other players to come back out of the draft. Uh, you know, it, it, it's one thing for a team to make a promise to a kid and say, if you're here, we're going to take you with this pick. Or if you get undrafted, we're going to give you a two-way contract. But it's also an incomplete picture for NBA franchises right now because they're still waiting on a myriad of decisions from other players that they might like who maybe are going to end up going back to school. And if, if a player that they like goes back to school, then maybe that impacts things and you call up Jalen Wilson's agent or Kevin McCuller or whoever and say that 
okay, uh, we we feel comfortable. We can make you a promise. We'll give you a two-way deal if you're undrafted, or we'll take you here with pick 55 or whatever it is. By the way, this year's draft is only 58 picks because they got rid of some picks. So makes it even harder to get drafted. This year, though, is there really a difference between being picked 59 and getting on a two-way deal? In fact, the two-way deal is probably better because you can kind of pick your your freedom at that point. But nonetheless, um, the longer that this goes on where they have not made a decision, the more it does make it feel like, oh, man, maybe they, maybe they are staying in the NBA. And I get it. Like, Bill Self says this all the time. If you're in that process, go in with, with two feet in. You know, cannonball into the pool. Don't just dip your toe into the pool. Cannonball in where, as you're doing this, you're approaching it like, this is my goal. So that you give the full-fledged effort and you don't have the mindset of, well, if this doesn't go well, I'll come back to school. Because then, in the back of your mind, you're set up for failure. Right. Um, I think of that like scene from, gosh, this is, uh, you know, it feels like a decade ago now, which is crazy to think about. But um, the last Batman movie with Christian Bale and you have Bane and everything, and he's stuck in that jail. Sorry to if there's any spoilers here. If you haven't seen it by now, that's on you. Um, and, and he's trying to get out of the jail and there's no, you know, they just if anybody can get out, they just let him go. But you have to climb up this large like, I guess the the edges, the uh, around the circle going up. And there's this one area where you have to make a jump and everybody jumps with the like harness on. And he finally gets out by jumping without the harness because he gets rid of his restrictions. So that's, that's kind of what you're talking about there. Like you want to go in full fledged because if you don't have that in the back of your mind, it maybe releases something that allows you to go one step further. But that would be why the players would run away. They want to get as much intel as possible. They want to get as many players coming back to school as possible so it clears out the field a little bit more. And also, they want to take as many visits and have as many phone calls and meetings with teams as they possibly can to both gauge interest to see if there is any promises there and also so that they can get a clear... You know, if one team is interested in you and they're like, yeah, if you're undrafted, we'll probably give you a two-way deal and it's just one team. Do you really want to risk just that one team having that? But... The more teams you talk to, uh, the longer you're in this process, the more teams you impress with your different workouts, uh, the more that is beneficial to you. But again, the longer that a player goes in this whole process, the more it makes you think that they are leaning towards staying in the NBA draft. Now, you have the other side of, of the argument there, which you could just say, no, they're just trying to gather as much intel as possible, which why would you not? If you're going through this process, do it the right way. Again, going back to that. We've seen it before, too, with Ochag Baji, Yudoka Azabuki, guys who waited till pretty much the last minute to announce that they were coming back to KU. Now, this isn't something where I can keep giving you examples on and on and on down the list because this is kind of a newer process, this idea of testing and be able to come back. It's only been around, what, four, five, six years, something like that. But those are both examples of guys who stayed in the process. In the case of Ochag Baji, a little bit similar to Jalen Wilson. I think the draft stock was a little higher than Jalen. But he was a guy that you would see on certain mock drafts or big boards that maybe would pop up in the, in the middle of the second round or the early part of the second round. Some mock drafts wouldn't even have him on there. And so it was like, okay, this guy, I think he'll come back. I think he's just testing uh, although the messaging that he gave when he said he was testing made it sound like he was probably gone. And then you go through the process, and he stays in longer and longer and stays in that process and became more like, man, I don't know if Ochai's coming back. 
ended up coming back, but it didn't seem like it was close at all to being a sure thing. Same with Udoka Azubuki. I think Udoka Azubuki, he was injured coming into that draft process, and um, we ended up finding out after the deadline. He didn't even announce. It seemed like he wanted to go pro. He just didn't have the opportunity to showcase himself in front of NBA scouts and teams and GMs and so forth because he was injured. But those are both guys that I think wanted to go pro and took the process as long as possible and did eventually come back. So maybe the lesson there is this. The guys who take a really long time and then decide to come back, they clearly want to be in the NBA. They just maybe didn't get all the feedback they could have hoped for. And it's not to say that, you know, if Ochag Baji would have went into the draft last year as opposed to this year, yeah, certainly he'd be leaving money on the table from where he is now. He's going to be a top 20 pick in the draft and have guaranteed contracts and millions of dollars. And, you know, Ochai might have just worked into that if he would have been a second-round pick last year. You you just don't know. I just think it's very interesting because it, going into this process, like the numbers feel like it keeps falling on Jalen Wilson for me, of the percentages of like, you know, if somebody asks me, what's the percentage chance you think that Jalen Wilson will stay in the NBA draft? Or what's the percentage chance you think Jalen Wilson's going to come back to Kansas? When he first tested, I was like, I don't know, maybe 70% chance that he probably comes back to KU, maybe even higher than that. As time goes on, you get to the G League elite camp. It goes off, plays really well. Okay, maybe we're down to 60%, but let's see what he can do at the NBA Combine. NBA Combine comes out, doesn't have very efficient games, one of seven from three. So you're like, okay, 60, 65%. But it seems like everything, every report that comes out, whatever, every bit of news, I don't know how much like NBA teams actually look at how you shot in a two-game sample, let alone a four-game sample, even if you include the G League games. They're more so maybe looking at just like, what does the stroke look like? Does it look pure? Does it look like you can hit these shots? What do we believe? And those are still questions for Jalen Wilson. I mean, if he comes back, that's going to be the big thing. Can he become a shooter? Because that would be as big as anything for his potential NBA career. And so you see all these things happening, and the longer he stays in it and getting all these workouts does make you start to wane. I'm kind of at the point now, I'm almost at like a 50-50 coin flip, whether I think Jalen is going to come back or not. Now, again, we can have this conversation, which I'll bring up, but, you know, at this point, I'm not sure how much it matters to him, but with NIL the way it is, what are you going to be better off doing? Being an undrafted player where you get in a two-way contract, if you get a two-way contract, how that works, you're pretty much in the G League. You're bouncing back and forth between some small town, late-night flights, and the NBA team. And you're getting in there for a couple NBA games. I think Marcus Garrett played in like nine games. You can play up to a certain amount. It's like 30 games or something like that is what the most you can play for. So for every game you're with the NBA team, you get basically this portion of NBA salary. So essentially, if you make it with the NBA team for the maximum amount of games allowed for on a two-way contract, you're going to make around $300,000, $250,000 in the NBA. Now, that would be a lot of money on NIL. There are some guys that, that have blown, I mean, Nigel Pack, look at that, right? But I think that might be more the exception than the rule. Nonetheless, you're on a national title winning team. 
playing for Kansas, you would be the leader of the team coming in. It's hard for me not to think you couldn't at least get there. But again, in the case of a guy like Marcus Garrett, if you're not playing all 30 games in the NBA, you're not going to get that full amount of money on the two-way. You're getting a G League salary plus you know, this or that to where Jalen Wilson probably could make more money coming back to Kansas than being on a two-way contract. So it, it, it can't just be about the money here. It could be something just, you know, you, you want to start your NBA career. It's been a dream all of a lot of these kids' lives to make it into the NBA and to play in an NBA game. If you're dangling that carrot right in front of you, uh, the face, even though it's it's under the guise of, well, you're going to be on a two-way contract. You're not going to have a guaranteed contract. Well, guess what? A lot of these guys have been betting on themselves for years and years and years and approach this thing, especially Jalen. He's a very confident dude. They approach this thing as, okay, well, all you got to do is give me a shot. If you give me a shot, I know I'm going to perform. That's how a lot of athletes work. Because to be successful, a lot of times you have to have that mentality. But it goes counter to the idea that, well, let's think about the options here. Because in the case of Jalen Wilson, if you think about the options and say that, okay, I can work on all those things in college, I can be the guy on the team, I can make all this NIL money, and then worst case scenario, I'm back where my draft stock is now, which is projected to be undrafted, but probably get a two-way deal. Best case scenario, I work myself into being drafted, right? And you made all that NIL money anyway. But from the standpoint of, I have an opportunity right now to get at least a flyer opportunity in the NBA. I'll be with the team. I'm going to show them what I'm worth. I'm going to show them what I'm made of. I'm going to bet on myself. It's hard to blame a guy when you view it from that perspective. That being said, I said, you know, if I'm giving a percentage, I'm going 50-50. I'm still slightly, slightly, very, very slightly leaning that I think Jalen comes back. I just wouldn't be surprised Either way, and I've said that all along, even when it was 70-30. It wasn't going to be a total shock to me if Jalen ended up staying in the NBA draft just because you understood. You're, you're coming off a title year. He is a very confident kid. Like You get it. At this point, I'm going to say 51%. 51%, I'll say Jalen coming back to KU. Now, as far as Kevin McCuller, that's another discussion. Um, and, and it's a lot of the same things that I just said about Jalen Wilson as far as Kevin McCuller goes. The difference for Kevin McCuller is that, like, I, I've seen him a little bit higher on some big boards or mock drafts than where Jalen has been, but by that, you know, that's that's media people, which a lot of times I, I think are in the know and, and talk with these guys, whether it's scouts or GMs or whoever. But the fact that Kevin McCuller did not make it out of the G League elite camp, and yeah, he got injured, so that obviously impacts it, but Jalen did. Makes you think that maybe Jalen's draft stock is higher. I don't know. I would just think that, you know, good defensive wings, especially with you see the way that the NBA Finals have gone now where you have Boston who's playing small with Grant Williams at the five and Draymond Green at the five for the Warriors when they're not playing Kevin Looney and Robert Williams at the five for those teams that every team could use switchable defensive wings. They just could in the NBA. I just still continue to vamp on the idea that why go through the trouble if you're Kevin McCuller? Like, why go through the trouble of upsetting your fan base and getting all this vitriol on social media and being labeled a traitor or whatever to pick another school or say you're going to another school and then end up in the NBA? Like, at that point, 
why would you not have just not announced where you were going to go and then just stayed in the NBA? Because then you wouldn't have to worry about all that. And maybe he just doesn't care, I, I guess, but it just it seems like going through unwanted, unwarranted trouble. So for that reason, I continue to think that Kevin McCuller is going to be at KU. But again, the longer this goes, the longer he's in the NBA draft process, the more it starts to make you wonder. So as far as a percentage on Kevin McCuller, I was probably 70, 80% last week. I'll drop it a little just because, again, the longer this goes. Um, but I'm probably still at 65%, 70%, something like that, that he comes back. Same light, though, as Jalen Wilson. If either one of those guys ends up staying in the draft, I'm not going to be completely shocked. It's not my expectation, but I'm not going to be completely shocked. And, you know, if McCuller ends up, as far as the two decisions, if McCuller ends up not coming, like, it, it obviously hurts. You'd, you'd love to have a player that, in my opinion, probably be the best defender in the conference. Again, he was the best defender on the best defensive team in the entire country last year. Why he did not make the All-Big 12 defensive team is beyond me. Nonetheless, it obviously hurts not having that guy, a guy who can handle the ball, a guy who can play elite defense, a guy whose um, transition game and, and passing and ability to you know, play offensively is probably being a little underrated based on the injury that he had to deal with. It's a, it's a big hit to not actually end up with him. But you can find good use of that scholarship. And it's almost like, okay, well, we never had him in the first. Like, we never actually had him in a KU uniform. We never saw him in a KU uniform. He never contributed X amount of minutes and points for KU to begin with. So even though you gained him and lost him, it would just be like nothing ever happened, right? But if Jalen doesn't come back, I think it further adds to the question I have about this team, which right now, you know, you look on paper and you say, oh, great. This defense could be dynamic next season, especially if they get rim protection and shot blocking from the five position. Or if just KJ is playing the five and you're just this ultra switchable. I mean, like that lineup you could throw out there with um, Kevin McCuller and KJ Adams and Dewan Harris. You know, again, you have questions about the offense, but an athletic wing like MJ Rice and so forth. It's like, holy cow, that team could be elite defensively. But you have questions about the shooting. You have questions about the offense. And yeah, Grady Dick and Zach Clements, you think those guys are going to be great shooters. But that's uh, some unknown there with a freshman coming in and a guy who shot 27% on very limited numbers of threes this past season. So you have questions about the offense. The one thing Jalen Wilson provides, because Dewan Harris, you think of as a facilitator, defensive player. KJ Adams, you think of a defensive player. Um, in the case of Kevin McCuller, defensive player. As far as the offensive guys, they're all guys that either didn't play a big role last year, Zach Clemens, or guys that we just haven't seen. And in some cases with freshmen, you just don't know how they're going to translate, right? Like you think that Quentin Grimes or Bryce Thompson are going to be these All-Americans right away, and it takes some time for some of those guys. Grady Dick or MJ Rice, those guys could be great right away. They could be all Big 12 players or might take them a couple years. You just don't know. So if you're relying on that for the, your offense, it just becomes more of a gamble. And that is the beauty of if Jalen Wilson comes back. He immediately comes in. You immediately expect him to be the team leader in points per game, probably in rebounds per game as well. He can grab and go. He can help you with something that you were elite at this past season, being a transition team. You'd be able to continue to do that because you'd have 
again, a lineup with three or four guys, no matter who's on the floor, that can grab and go. I mean, maybe five guys. Again, if you, you're playing a lineup where Jalen's at the four, K.J. Adams at the five, you have Kevin McCuller at the three and Dewan and another point guard or Grady Dick or whoever, that's five guys who can grab and go. So, like, the transition could be great, which helps in offense, certainly. Um, Jalen would be one of your top options just to begin with offensively. And Jalen is the immediate leader that you look at, both in terms of we had that question in the mailbag last week about who would be the leader of the team from a vocal perspective. That is a big question. And as we we're going through the question, there was no immediate, no obvious answer. So having that back and having a guy back that you look at as the alpha option number one by far of the offense that can go get a bucket driving the ball that can help you uh, really pace your transition play. And if the shooting can turn around next season, then you are talking about an All-American level player. That would be huge to have back. And so while if Kevin McCuller stays in the draft, you can try to go out and get you know somebody else as, as you just view it as, well, we never had him to begin with. With Jalen, you really do start to question if you lose him, what is the offense going to look like here? And that would be my biggest worry with that. Again, I am leaning toward both of them coming to KU next season, but both are, uh, I think, working on slim margins as decision day looms coming up tomorrow. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com, is going to join us in about 15 minutes. From right now, we'll have Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports at 440. We'll be right back after this timeout. We are brought to you by Homefield Apparel. Homefield, a premium collegiate apparel brand out of Indianapolis, has incredibly comfortable, officially licensed apparel with vintage college designs because they dig through the archives of your school to find unique logos, mascots, and moments. The Kansas Collection has 14 pieces of apparel, including T-shirts, hoodies, crewnecks, and they are some of the most comfortable things that you will wear, plus they look really cool. And they just released, well, not just, but after the national championship, they released a national championship shirt. Use the code ROCKCHALKSPORTSTALK. That's ROCKCHALKSPORTSTALK, all one word, and you'll get 15%, 15% off your first order. That's right. Code Rock Chalk Sports Talk, all one word for 15% off with home field apparel on your first order. About 20 till 4, this is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Derek Johnson, and now joined by Matt Tate of Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com. I, I just keep refreshing, you know, Twitter, the computer, everything. Just waiting to see if, if like, a decision has been made. There's still, oh, gosh, what, 24, 32, something like that, hours, 31, 32 for Jalen Wilson, along with others, Kevin McCuller, if, you know, another player like a Courtney Ramey, if there were scholarship open, I don't know who, uh, to make decisions right now. And, uh, you know, we've seen other players before. Like, this isn't new that Ochak Baji, Udoka Azubuki, like, they kind of took it to the last minute before eventually deciding to come back to KU. So that's not new. But does the longer this goes where we haven't heard anything from Jalen and and I guess if you want to lump in Kevin McCuller here as well, does that make you lean more toward the fact that he could be staying in the draft? Um, I You know, I don't know if it does either way, really. Uh, I, I think what it does for me is it just underscores uh, what a hard decision this is, you know. I, I really, I really believe, as I've told you a million times, I think, you know, I, I've always thought this was kind of a win-win for Jalen. 
and and I still do believe that. But but it doesn't make it an easy decision. I mean, you know, it's great that you can you can make a good decision either way you go, but that doesn't mean picking one is easy or not. You know, and and so I think that's sometimes it does kind of tip you off and maybe is an indicator of of which way a guy might be leaning. But in this uh, this specific instance, I, I think it's just an indication of how hard this one is for him. I mean, I'll, I'll say this much. If, if it, it seems very clear to me that if he had been given any kind of draft guarantee, he probably would have announced by now and he would be gone. I mean, I think that, that, that that's what we're looking at. We're on the brink of is he going to get a true opportunity? Because I don't think he's going to get drafted. I don't think many people are telling him that, if any. Uh, I don't think him and his family even necessarily believe that. Um, I, I think that they obviously are hoping for that and, and haven't given up hope that that could possibly happen. But generally speaking, you kind of know. So I, I think if that had happened, I think he'd have been gone and it would have been decided by now. But now – you have to kind of weigh the decision of, you know, where, where, where are you at with how bad you want to go? And, and, you know, are you willing to go pro and start your career in some weird way, whether it's a two-way or a G League thing exclusively or, or what it is, or do you want to come back and enjoy what you know and, and have a great role and a good time and, and enjoy college one more year. So, I mean, you know, it's just, again, those are, those are great options. I don't know that he can go wrong. Um, but, but I do think it's hard. And, and I think he's the, the fact that he's taken this long is showing that having said all of that, I, I thought from the beginning that Jalen was the type of guy wired the way he is that would take this thing to June 1st anyway. And, and part of that is because, um, that just gives him the maximum amount of time to get as much feedback as he can. And, and again, as you've heard a million times in these draft conversations, it just takes one team. You don't have to have all 30 teams love you. You just need that one team. And, and so if he would have decided on you know May 25th, well, then that's a whole six, seven days of not working out for teams and not – um, leaving that door open for, for general managers or scouts or executives to call you up and say, hey, we really like you. you know. So I, I thought all along it would go to June 1st. Um, but, but, yeah, it does, it does remind you that this is a tough decision. And, and uh, boy, there's a lot of people that would love to have this kind of a tough decision, but that doesn't make it any easier. And, and uh, it, it's going to be really interesting to see what he decides because I think you can make a strong case either way. Um, I really do, but you know, if if you forced me to decide or, or make a guess, which I would imagine you probably would have done if I didn't ramble <laughs> right here, um, then I I think I think my my gut is telling me that he's gonna he's gonna go ahead and leave. But again, that's that's a pure pure guess at this point. I've reached out to you know a handful of people um, and, and try to find out what the thinking is. And, and I, I think that, you know, in some ways they may still be, um, Jalen that is may still be undecided and, and just trying to pin down that decision. But, but I, I think it feels to me like a, a decision that's going to be going to be made to leave and, and, and go ahead and start your career with the rest of your buddies. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. Cause if, you know, you asked me right when he entered, I think I probably had it at 75, 80% that he was coming back. Then you get to right. the G League camp and, you know, the performance there, maybe it's down to like 60%. Then 
the NBA Combine one, it didn't seem like it, it was you know that great of a couple scrimmages. So maybe it goes up to 65, but then you hear more and more about this. And uh, I <laughs> I put it for me, I put it at 51.49. Like it just it feels like a coin flip right now um, that I can't figure it out. Well, one thing that I do think is interesting though. Um, in trying to figure out these guys' decisions and, and see what's going to happen here. You know, if if Kevin McCuller ends up staying in the NBA draft and he doesn't come to KU, like, yeah, that you, you view it as a, well, what could have been? Like, the dude could be the best defender in the conference or the country or something like that, and clearly you want that guy, a guy who can handle the ball and everything. But when I look at this KU team for next year, uh, for me at least, I, I don't know how you feel, I have more questions about the offense than I do the defense. When you look at, okay, you have Dewan Harris, you have KJ Adams, you could have Kevin McCuller. Uh, there's a lot of good defensive pieces there. But who are going to be the guys that consistently shoot? Who are going to be the guys that score it? And you could say, well, Grady Dick and Zach Clemens, but that's a lot to ask for guys that we haven't seen score a lot of points in a KU uniform before. And so I do have more questions about the offense to where if Jalen does stay in the draft, because if Jalen comes back, he's clearly going to be the guy that everyone – expects to lead the team in points and maybe be a, a Big 12 player of the year type of guy. If he doesn't come back, I, I don't know who that guy is that you look at in terms of being a leader on the team in scoring, uh, being maybe just a team leader in general. Like, he's kind of the vocal leader as well there. Like, who would you view as being that guy if Jalen goes pro? Yeah, I don't think you're wrong. I, I, I looked this up the other day. Um, if Jalen leaves, if he, if he stays in the draft, um, K is going to have to replace 91% of its scoring wow. next year. Yeah, it's a lot. And it makes sense when you think about the names that left, but there's something about the, the number 91 that, that is even more eye opening than just talking about Ochai and Dave and CB and Remy. And, you know, I mean, like those guys sound like a lot, but 91 sounds like more to me. Uh, the crazy thing is even if Jalen returns, it's still 78%. So this is going to be a very different looking team. Um, and, and they're going to have to figure it out probably on the fly. I mean, they'll have preseason and, and, you know, all of that summer workouts, everything, but, um, anybody's guess is going to be good as the next person when you, when you start trying to decide exactly what you just asked, which is who's going to score, who's going to lead, who's going to be, you know, reliable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because at this point, it's just, it's just so much unknown and there's so much opportunity there for a number of different guys to, uh, to fill those, those numbers, whether it's the 91% or the 78%. So, um, without Jalen, um, yeah, it's, it's so hard to know because, you know, it's it's so hard to even guess, I should say. I mean, you you don't have a David McCormick that you're going to throw the ball down into, you know, you just don't have that. And, And so normally I think that would be a place where people sort of fall back and say, well, you know, maybe he doesn't shoot a high percentage, but we know he's going to get the opportunity. And so that's my guess, you know, but I, but there isn't really that guy, um, at least that we know of right now. So I think you have to look at the guards, um, man. And, and even that's hard, right? Like, w- would it shock you, Derek, if I told you that, that Joe Yosefu could be a guy that, that would be a decent answer for that? I mean, I mean, we, we talked about that coming into last off season. So why not? Yeah, and he's a guy that has scored high volume numbers at at the Division One level. Granted, that was at Drake, and and he didn't do a ton here last year. Um, part of that was opportunity, right? He just didn't play a ton of minutes. But 
I know he's motivated. I know very few people work harder than him, if anyone. And and, and you know the game is there. So it, it's a matter of is year two the year when it clicks for him at Kansas. And, and, and he's just an example. I'm not necessarily saying that would be the guy. Um, but he'd certainly be a, an answer I would accept, you know. And, and I, for that matter, I would accept MJ Rice. I would accept Grady Dick. Um, you know, the only, the only two answers I probably wouldn't accept are Dewan Harris because we all know how he plays, and he's not, he's not out there to score. He can, but he's, he's not going to change. He's not going to be that guy all of a sudden. And, uh, and, and, and then maybe uh, any of the other freshmen, you know. But, but could Zach Clements be a guy that gets hot? Sure. Could could Cam Cam Martin be a guy that gets hot? Sure. I mean those guys could those guys could score double digits every game, no problem. Um, but it also could be really hard too. So um, you know I I think that, that there's just as as much as it seems like we kind of know this team. I mean look if if Jalen if Jalen stays in, they still got to add another piece, right? So there's there's part of the equation here too. Um, if Jalen stays in and McCullough stays in for some reason, then they still have to add two more pieces. So we're we're we're, we're trying to figure this out, and it's understandable that we are. But it's just it just uh, it's still a little bit of an in, incomplete puzzle. And and uh, I think you're right, though. I think if Jalen returns, that's an easy answer. Um, but but yeah, I, I think it's uh, I think it's going to be a really inter- interesting situation to follow uh, as far as which one of those guys kind of emerges but it also to me is about more than just individual skill I think I think it's going to be really interesting um, to see if self and the coaching staff elect to maybe try to play a little differently and I don't know what that would mean exactly but again they that doesn't look like they're going to have a big man like they normally do in in somebody that you can throw the ball down down to with his back to the basket who who can score uh, you can maybe still run things through guys in that position but um there aren't there's no one on this roster that's that's going to make that shot that, that david mccormick made against north carolina that's immortalized now forever you know so um so so that's a factor too for me um i also think bobby pettiford's a, a big time player i think he could score uh, i think he could he could be a sneaky answer to that question if Jalen doesn't come back i think if he's healthy he's got a chance to be as good as anyone on that roster. So, um, you know, we'll see. I mean, it, 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 it'll be very different, but it should be a lot of fun. Yep. A lot of questions, which, uh, you know, it, it's, it, you're coming off a title year, so it, it makes it a little easier to stomach. I'm sure. Um, nonetheless, I, I have a couple questions for you. A uh, little, little either or questions, longer pro career, Ochag Baji or Christian Brown. Um, I, I, it is tough, but I, I went with Ochai. I, I think that, I think that his shot is more reliable. I, I think there's a lot of concern about Christian's um, slow release, and while you can work on that, I, I don't know if if that's as easily fixable um, as as maybe people want it to be. Um, beyond that, I think Ochai, even though he didn't jump as high as Christian Brown, I think he's he's overall a more fluid athlete and and. Um, his game's just more mature. I mean, I think Christian's going to kill it in the NBA. I think he's going to have a really good career. But I think Ochai's just uh, a guy that, that can is sort of a chameleon and can fit into any style, can fit into any team, doesn't need to uh, you know get things going for himself, whereas I think Christian's going to need um, a lot of opportunity to, to be a factor and to have an impact. And I think Ochai can be a guy that's just – 
ready always. And if he plays 28 to 38 minutes a game, he'll take it. And if he plays two to three minutes a game, he'll still be on a roster. So I, I it's, it's not a guarantee by any means. I don't, I don't know that it's uh it wouldn't surprise me if they play the exact same number of years, but if I had to pick one, I'd pick Ochai. Okay. How about this one? More likely to get their Jersey retired, Christian Brown or Andrew Wiggins. If he wins finals MVP. Uh, it has to be Wiggins, number one, because he was already the number one draft pick. I mean, I think he, he's probably going to end up going up for that alone just because of the recruiting impact. Um, certainly the finals MVP thing would help him. Um, but I think being the number one pick in the draft is, is good enough. I mean, I think that's, in some ways, that's probably even better than, than a finals MVP, um, at least as it relates to Kansas. So I, I think... I think it'd be really cool to get to see Browns go up there. I just don't know. Um, you know, they're already talking about stretching the criteria a little bit for Dave. It's uh, it's hard to imagine them stretching it so far for for Christian to get up there. Um, I think he's remembered as a, a a legend in his own way and and a great Kansas player, but I don't know that he gets up there. Well, Matt, that's all we got for you. Check out his work, KUSports.com, the LJ World. Thanks again, Matt. All right, Derek. Thanks, man. Have a good week. All right. That's Matt Tate, Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson. One hour down, two to go here on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, KLWN.com, the KLWN app. Depend on it. Did you know that on our website, KLWN.com, as well as our sister stations, 1059KissFM.com, Bull929.com, we have a program called Hometown Deals. So you click the tab, and it takes you to a magical place where gift cards are 50% off. We have handfuls of different restaurants and places that you can go to that you can get a 50% off gift card too. So just go to the website, click Hometown Deals, and you'll see some of those gift cards for 50% off. If you're a business and interested in being part of this as well and getting featured ads at no cash price and just gift card cost, shoot us an email, djohnson at gpmnow.com. Tough getting out of bed this morning after your weekend-long bender? I gotta get out of here. I think I'm gonna lose it. Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Instead of focusing on Monday, it's time to rehash the glory days of the weekend that was right now on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. you freaking me out, man. I got a massive headache. Okay, let's just calm down. How am I supposed to calm down? Look around you. With Derek Johnson. When you come in on Monday and you're not feeling real well, does anyone ever say to you, sounds like someone has a case of the Mondays? No. No, man. This is technically your case of the Mondays here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk, although it's a Tuesday. And you may be wondering, well, why are we doing case of the Mondays on a Tuesday? Because it was a three-day weekend. So technically today is case of the Tuesdays, but... Um, you know, I'm not going to completely change up the liner and do all that just for a one-time thing. So with that being said, our case of the Tuesdays, which honestly is worse than case of the Mondays when it happens like this, because actually, I don't know. Is it better? Is it worse? Because you get the three days, you get an extra day to relax. It's almost like every weekend should be a three-day weekend because you, you, you're going to use one of the days of the weekend just to like do chores and run errands and stuff. And so on a two-day weekend... You're really only getting one day. The three-day weekend is nice because you get the two days. You get the one day to, to do chores or whatever else that you need to do. Um, I digress. Case of the Tuesdays 
for peaceful fantasy football leagues. If you missed this, this was, I think, Friday night. Um, This is one of the most remarkable sports stories or reason to lead to conflict. Uh, Do I dare say of all time? I know that's hyperbolic. Um, Jock Peterson, outfielder for the San Francisco Giants. Tommy Pham, outfielder for the Cincinnati Reds. Giants were playing in Cincinnati. And all of a sudden, before the game, teams are warming up. Players are on the field. Tommy Pham and Jock Peterson go over to talk to each other. And, you know, there's not, like, video of, like, the close-up. You can just see video that they release afterwards of the guys from kind of far away. And all of a sudden, you just see Tommy Pham just slap Jock Peterson. Like, what the heck is going on? Did he say something bad? Like, what's going on? Teams, it's not clearing the benches because they weren't already, like, on the benches. But the two teams come out, separate everything. Turns out Tommy Pham gets suspended for three games for slapping Jock Peterson. But the reason that they got into a kerfuffle, the reason that, I don't even know if I should call it that, it's just the reason Tommy Pham slapped Jock Peterson. It's not what you'd think. Wasn't a your mama joke, wasn't saying something mean, racist, or vile. No, no, no. Apparently, Tommy Pham did not like Jock Peterson's actions in a fantasy football league that the two were in. So we find out a little bit after the slap that Tommy Pham slapped Jock Peterson over a fantasy football league. And then we find out the next day and through post game and everything, apparently Jock Peterson um, used an IR spot to place a guy who was out so that he could pick someone else up in fantasy football. And Tommy Pham didn't take too kindly that. Tommy Pham thought he was bending the rules. Tommy Pham thought that he cheated. And so he was unhappy. And then I guess the camel that the, or the, the straw that broke the camel's back was um, the little group chat or whatever that Jock Peterson and there were some other like MLB players and, and people who were in the group chat and in the fantasy football league. Jock Peterson sent like a, a gif, you say gif, gif, whatever, of these like weightlifters and you know they're both like looking super strong and it had the Dodgers and the Giants looking super strong and then there was a third guy he like can't get the weight over his head and it like comes down and hits him in the head and he, and he had the logo above it and that was the Padres and Tommy Pham took major umbrage with that he was on the Padres last year now may I remind you Tommy Pham got stabbed last year and on one hand I I feel bad. You get stabbed. That should never happen to anybody. But that's a very specific thing that would happen to someone who's a Major League Baseball player that makes you wonder, what else is going on there? And then he basically challenges Tyler Stevenson, who is the catcher for the Reds, who, or, or, I'm sorry, not Tyler Stevenson, challenges Luke Voigt, who's the first baseman for the Padres, who basically is sliding home and kind of takes out the catcher, Tyler, Tyler Stevenson, for the Reds, his new team. And didn't like it, thought it was a dirty play, challenges him to a fight. So, like, clearly Tommy Pham has things going on. And um, this is the latest. I cannot imagine getting that upset over 
Like, this wasn't a, a situation of, hey, we're in the same fantasy football league, and I won the league, and this was like a big money league, and I'm owed tens of thousands of dollars, and I never got paid, and you're the guy who's supposed to owe me money. You know, give me my money. And the guy's like, no, slap him, right? That would make sense to me. Over that, I know this is like very much a joke, and it, it very much is because this is a very funny situation for that to happen, but also I can't help but like feel bad and wonder about the mental side of things for Tommy Pham, and that is worrisome. But yeah, uh, case of the Tuesdays for peaceful fantasy football leagues, no more. Is that a thing? You do something somebody doesn't like, you're not just going to hear about it on the message board. You're not just going to get a text about it. You you uh you know make a bad trade or you drop someone you shouldn't. You bend the rules a little to your favor. It's slapping time. Tommy Pham has opened the dam. Um, case of the Tuesdays for ball boys of the Oregon State UCLA game. They played twice over the um, weekend of the Pac-12 tournament. Oregon State won the most recent one, 8-7, to before losing to Stanford. But the first time they played, it was on Saturday night. If you didn't know the final score of this game, you would have thought this was a football game or you would have thought that I was lying about what I'm about to say. But UCLA won 25-22. to Yes, this is baseball. This was a 10-inning game that UCLA won 25-22. to It was a 5-hour and 44-minute game. The game started off 3-2. to Then UCLA led 7-2. to Oregon State started to go on a bit of a comeback. And Oregon State, through six innings of work, led 17-10. to It stays 17-10 through seven. Then they're up 19-12 to going into the ninth. They add two more. Oregon State is up 21-12, to headed into the bottom of the ninth inning. Then UCLA went on one of the most remarkable runs that you could have. And, and honestly, it's it's a good thing they won the game. And Oregon State ended up, as I mentioned, getting you know the win back the next day. But that would have been so disappointing if you come back from nine in the ninth not to win in a crazy game. Nine runs in the bottom of the ninth. 14 extra innings, then in extras. Oregon State scores once. You go up 22-21. And then UCLA, to win the game on top of that all, they hit a three-run home run. So they tied it to 22, then a three-run home run just to add a little bit more to make it 25-22. to I would love to see the, I guess, the recap of just like hit, 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 hit of that ninth inning of work for UCLA. That's unbelievable, and good for them for doing it. Um, I would be pretty upset if I was somebody who was working this game. You know, whether that was a ball boy, that's what I mentioned here. Like, you're like, okay, I, I, three-hour event, I'm getting paid whatever amount of money. Like, I'm just running back for it. You know how many times, how many balls you're losing to with the game, that high score? And then if you're an umpire... Like, sitting up and down. How many pitches were in that game? My goodness. 25-22. You would be feeling it. You'd be very sore today. So that is why that is on our case of the Tuesdays. Next up is Liverpool. Liverpudlians, I believe is what you're called if you're from Liverpool. Uh, Liverpool in soccer. Just played in the Champions 
League final over the weekend. They played Real Madrid and they lost 1-0. Tough in general just to have that happen to you. You make it all the way to the Champions League final, which is essentially the indication of you're the best club in the world. Because if you win your league, that's one thing, but it's another if you're winning the Champions League amongst all these other leagues in Europe and wherever else. So that on its own, tough to, to you know, you're not happy when the Chiefs lose in the Super Bowl, right? Well, on top of that, this comes a week, two weeks, lost t- track of time, after they lost the British Premier League and let alone lost it in a crazy way. Um, they were in a situation where, and this goes back to what we talked about last week, Man City was down 2 nothing in their game. And Liverpool was in a situation where if Man City would have tied or lost, Liverpool would have won the British Premier League. So you'd be saying, okay, well, we made it to the Champions League final, even though we lost to Real Madrid. We won the Premier League. We made it all the way there. But now they are just second place after second place. Because Man City comes back from 2-0. They score three quick goals. They end up winning 3-2. So Liverpool has to settle for second there in the Premier League. Then they go to the Champions League final. They settle for second there as well. Uh, that stinks. You go from back-to-back heartbreak, so to speak. And you still end up, you know, with a lot of, um, you know, cool things that happened over the course of the season. But you don't even end up with a trophy when you very well could have just one play here or there on either side. Uh, last up in case of the Tuesdays is the Kansas City Royals. Which, you know, it's it's mostly all cases of the Mondays or Tuesdays for the Royals every week. Um, they have now dropped to being tied for the worst record in the MLB with the Cincinnati Reds. The team is an absolute mess. I mean, you have Carlos Santana continuing to get clutch at bats. You had a situation last night where you get just everything you could ask for in terms of trying to take the lead or tie the game from behind, and then you just, you know, crumb down your leg, so to speak, of not being able to take advantage with runners in scoring position. And there's just so many things wrong with this team, whether you look at the pitching and, you know, Zach Greinke having to go to the IL and struggling and a lot of these young guys coming out and struggling. Brady Singer has has looked nice since coming back. Daniel Lynch has had flashes but had some downturns as well. The bullpen has not been good. The lineup, uh, Bobby Witt is picking it up. Salvador Perez is back. MJ Melendez is up. But they just there's no depth in the lineup, and Carlos Santana is so bad he continues to get um, opportunities and appearances. Um, you have Ryan O'Hearn continuing to do the same thing and not producing at all. You have guys in the minors who are producing. You have organizational people, scouts, and Dayton Moore talking about how well they're just not ready yet and they need a, a full seasons of work in the minor leagues. When they've already like surpassed, in the case of like Vinny Pascantino, I'm talking about here, um, who's just mashing in AAA, already like surpassed what Eric Hosmer got in the minors. So it's like, what, what is going on here? Um, there just seems to be no direction for this team. Seems to be so much dysfunction for this team. They keep finding worse and worse ways to lose, and now the results is we're not even in June yet. We're about to be. Season's already over for the Kansas City Royals. And that has happened way too many times. We all know what's coming, right? They're going to hit a hot streak, whether it's right before the trade deadline in July 
that gets them to a point where they're only, you know, seven, eight games under 500 and they're playing better. And you start to talk about, well, we, we know they're not a playoff team, but if they can contend for high 70s wins and that'll be a nice springboard for next year or they'll be completely out of it. And then all of a sudden in September, they'll just rattle off a bunch of wins when things don't really matter at that point. And it'll get you excited going, are they going to carry this over into next year? But no, no, they won't because that is just what has happened over the last, what, four, five, six straight years for the Kansas City Royals. They're an absolute mess, and it is a case of the Tuesdays for them. Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports does not have a case of the Tuesdays. He's going to join us in about 20 minutes from right now. I'm Derek Johnson. Coming up next, NBA Finals are set. This is Rock Shock Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports is going to join the show in about 15 minutes from right now. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Shock Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. The NBA Finals are set. So are the NHL Conference Finals. Uh, in the NBA, we have the Boston Celtics taking on the Golden State Warriors. The Warriors were never really pushed by the Dallas Mavericks. I thought going into the series, it was just going to be too much for Luka to overcome, and he overcame a really good Suns team, so you didn't totally doubt it, but they just had too much firepower in the end. And now you go into this series with the Celtics, who I the Heat kind of got JoJo Whited, right? Like it, the JoJo White play from the uh, it was the Midwest Regional Finals against at the time Texas Western, now UTEP in uh, I think it was 1966, 1967, something like that. Uh, sounds about right, and. You know, we've seen the movie Glory Road. JoJo White hits the shot. They call him out of bounds. Um, a lot of KU fans will tell you that he wasn't actually out of bounds, but that doesn't go as well with the story necessarily. And that's almost what happened in that Heat game. Um, they end up losing the game. They're, they're down one near the end. Jimmy Butler pulls up and transition from three. That sparked its own debate, although most of the people I saw saying, yeah, who cares, just let him take that shot. Nonetheless, um, there was a play earlier that Max Struess hits a corner three and they went back and it was like two plays later. They go back and they reviewed it and they took it off the board, which is weird because it was two plays later and they said he was out of bounds, but they, they have this one like side angle where they view it. And if you were viewing it vertically, you would say his heel was out of bounds, but as you're viewing it from the side, you can see his heel is up on the out of bounds line. I don't think it was actually out of bounds, but it got, overturned and it's impossible to know how the game plays out from then on but it's hard not to look at the final score and say okay if they had that extra three that just got wiped away are the heat going to the finals so that's really unfortunate for them nonetheless I, I do think the Celtics are the better team that comes out of there and it's weird because on one hand I'm like man the Celtics can't keep getting like it's it's the uh, breaking bad Jesse Pinkman meme he can't keep getting away with this. Like the Celtics can't keep getting away with this. You, you go to, you go to uh, a, a game seven in the series against Milwaukee. In fact, you're down three to two. You lose game five at home to the defending champ Milwaukee Bucks, and you somehow come back and win the series, including winning game six on the road. You go up three two on the Miami Heat, and then you lose game six at home, and now you're game seven on the road. And then also. You're up by so much, and you almost blow the lead late. Like, you can't keep getting away with this. But maybe they will, because they're in the NBA Finals now. The Warriors do have the home court advantage 
in the seven-game series, which matters, but the Heat have been so good. Or not the Heat. The Celtics have been so good on the road so far in the playoffs. They won three road playoff games against the Miami Heat. They won that big game six in Milwaukee. They won, I forget if it was game three or game four in Milwaukee as well. They obviously did well in the Brooklyn series on the road. So that's not overly an issue of the Celtics, but you have two teams who um, can play a functional big man, whether it's Kevin Looney for the Warriors or if it's Robert Williams or Daniel Tice or whoever for the Celtics, but you also have two teams who can really thrive playing small ball. We've seen a lot of Grant Williams at the five causing teams trouble. We've seen a lot of Draymond Green at the five causing teams trouble. It's funny because typically you would go into series and I think you would have a clear indication of who the best player in the series is. It gets blurred a little bit. Like, I think going into last series, you said Jason Tatum was the best player of that series, but Jimmy Butler played probably like the best player in that series specifically. In this one, I'm not sure who you say. Do you go with Steph Curry? Do you go with Jason Tatum? You have more that you can do when you're a wing that size and and the defensive impact. I'd probably go Jason Tatum. And Steph Curry hasn't had the most efficient finals in his past. But would it shock you if Steph Curry went out there and just had this unbelievable shooting performance for a few games and carried the Warriors to the win? No, it, it absolutely would not. You could make the argument, though, that the Celtics, if, if you're drafting players, because Steph Curry is a better player than Jalen Brown, but if you're just talking about drafting players for guys among the two finals teams and what you would want to build your roster around, there's nothing replacing versatile wings that can guard multiple positions defensively and get their own shot offensively. And the the Celtics have two of those with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum that those might be your first two picks. Now, I I think probably if you're ranking the players in this series, you have Jason Tatum followed by Stephen Curry and then probably have Jalen Brown number three. So the Celtics have probably the best player in two of the top three. But the problem for them becomes, do the Warriors have the next like three or four? Clay Thompson hasn't looked totally right to the guy we're used to, but he's still a really good player. Andrew Wiggins put up an all-star season, and he has been unbelievable on both ends of the court so far in the playoffs. He's been great at offensive rebounding, great at defense. He's been giving them uh, shot making. Jordan Poole has been really good in the playoffs as well. So is Kevon Looney. You know, you have Draymond Green. And I think probably somewhere in there, a guy like Marcus Smart or the way Al Horford's been shooting it in the postseason could slide in among some of those guys. But that's where I wonder if it pays off. The the guys who were, you know, that number two through number five in the Warriors, are they able to to do too much over the Celtics? I do think the Celtics are going to win the NBA Finals. I have them winning in seven games. I think it's going to be a, a, a good series in terms of the length of the series. I just hope that we get actually good games. That's been a theme so far in the NBA playoffs, and it has not been a fun theme. With the way that teams, you know, I mean, these are the most elite shot makers in the world who are playing in the NBA. And so, obviously, they're going to be able to shoot three-pointers really well. And in the college game, the court is more condensed because, A, it's a shorter three-point line. Um, B, the paint is shorter in the NBA. And also, there's, uh, like, which causes the court to get spaced more because your big man can't just camp at the paint. He'll get a three-second call, right? So, it causes the floor to space more, and you have better athletes, and the court's bigger, right? So, you have bigger reasons that players could get open, shots from three, and they're better shot makers in the NBA. And, and the problem that has become is that we are just getting these games where one team makes all the threes, another does not. 
and because that is such a focal point of offense is getting up so many shots, the volume and the difference of one team making a bunch of threes and the other not is so large. This isn't the old NBA where if one team made a lot of threes, they went, you know, eight of 20, whereas the other team was cold and they were four of 20. And there's a four make difference in three-point shots. Now it's, no, we went 18 of, of 48 and you went six of 35. And so it's it's just almost impossible to overcome that math equation going against you. And so it's led to a lot of these games, even though a lot of these series have been close, a lot of the games have been blowouts. Like more than half the games are double-digit games. And it's just, it, it's not fun. It's not fun to watch. It's it's not really that fun. I've honestly had more fun watching the NHL playoffs than I have the NBA playoffs this year. But I'm excited for what the NBA finals could be because, you know, I, I think from maybe February on, the Celtics have played like the best team in the East. And I think that's what they proved in the playoffs. And the Warriors, we know what they've been. You have star power. You have unique lineups. You have two big areas in terms of, you know, both on different coasts as well. I'm excited for it. I did think one thing that I thought was fun kind of looking at this was how much success that Kansas has had against a bunch of the players who are in the finals. Um, Everyone will remember KU beating Davidson and Steph Curry in the 2008 Elite Eight. How about the 2003 Elite Eight? KU beats Arizona and Andre Iguodala. Uh, Gary Payton II, who was injured for the last series and a half. They think he might be coming back. Uh, he was at Oregon State. KU beat him at the Sprint Center a few years ago. Al Horford was on those really good back-to-back national title teams for Florida. KU beat them in Vegas in 2006. Obviously, you beat Marcus Smart a couple times. He got KU a couple times as well. Grant Williams from Tennessee. KU beat him in the 2019 NIT preseason final. Robert Williams went to Texas A&M. He's on the Celtics now doing really well. You beat him in the Big 12 SEC showdown. You technically beat Jason Tatum, but he didn't play in the game. He was on that Duke team that Frank Mason hit the game-winning shot in the Champions Classic against, but he was hurt and didn't play. But eh, we'll count it up. Got the win. Um, Should we give another de facto win to Jalen Brown was on a Cal team that I forget if they were a four or five seed, but they lost in the first round. And then Maryland beat Hawaii. Hawaii was the team that beat Cal. And then Kansas beat Maryland in the Sweet 16 of 2016. So, you know, you you do the line. You beat Jalen Brown as well. I'm sure there's other guys as well, but I don't want to dip, like, too far into the rotation and be like, "Uh, this 12th guy, KU smacked him. But I don't know. I just thought that was kind of cool lineage. And then, obviously, you have Andrew Wiggins playing in the NBA Finals. And how fun would it be if Andrew Wiggins won Finals MVP? I, I asked Matt about it earlier. Like, would that factor into his jersey retirement? We've talked about this a lot, the fact that it it is a college jersey retirement, so should it? Probably not, but like it does matter that that happened. I, I'm not expecting that to be the case, but Andre Godala won finals MVP one of the years that the Warriors won it, not Steph Curry, so don't exclude Andrew Wiggins. Could win the award. That'd be pretty cool. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Kevin Flaherty, 24-7 Sports, joins us next. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com. And we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. 
This is RCST, joined now by Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports and CBS here on RCST. Uh, so, Kevin, I, I know that you've been doing some stuff with 24-7 and KU and, and looking through some of the Bart Torvik numbers. Um, and, and I love playing around with, like, the roster cast and stuff, though, right now. There's a little less to play around with with KU's roster. Maybe being said, I guess we'll wait and see what happens with Jalen Wilson. Um, but you've looked at those and, and some of the Big 12. And one thing I thought was funny, I, I don't know if you noticed this, but I, I was kind of playing around with it before KU got equipment from Kevin McCuller, and I was playing around with it with, you know, if you add Tyrese Hunter, if you add Kevin McCuller, what would happen? And it actually, it dropped their ranking from, I think, 8th to ninth, or, or by one spot, just by a little bit, by adding either one of those. So what do you kind of make of, of that part of the Bart Torvik roster cast? Sure. It's funny because I actually talked with Bart about this. Uh, I'm not sure we're supposed to go revealing Twitter DMs, but it's not exactly <laughs> privileged information. Uh, but Bart was talking about, he calls it the sausage maker for a reason because nobody really wants to see, you know, how the sausage is made. And, and I think in both cases, you have players whose impacts it's hard to gauge them offensively. And one of the things that's really difficult when you have a projection formula like Bart Torvik has is to indicate how much somebody will improve a team defensively, right? Because that's something that people still to this day struggle to really gauge statistically is just what kind of an impact does this guy have defensively? And and with both Hunter and McCuller, Obviously, in varying ways, you're talking about guys who maybe aren't as efficient offensively, but are really, really good defenders. And so when you plug them into a preseason formula like that, and we've talked about reasons why I think Tyrese Hunter will be a more efficient player next year. I think Kevin McCuller will probably be a more efficient player next year when he's not dealing with injuries when he's in, you know, an offense that, that maybe fits him a little bit better, that gets in the transition a little bit better. But at the same time, from just a strictly number standpoint and saying this is what this player is going to output this season, the fact that both of those guys are really good defenders, it doesn't really factor into that as much. And so when you look at the fact that they maybe didn't have the most efficient offensive seasons the year before, you can project some improvement, or the numbers might project some improvement. But I think more than that, you know, it, it kind of says, hey, wait a minute, you're taking possessions away from an efficient offensive player, and all of a sudden you're giving them to a less efficient player, and so you're going to drop at that point. Well, and another thing that I found interesting was as you scour through the Big 12, Baylor is not just number one overall in Bartorvik, but they have the number one offense. And it's just kind of a funny flip from last year's team, which at one point we were talking about as being the best defense in the country and how they had these athletic defensive wings with uh, Brown and Sohan that could just muck things up for you offensively. Uh, do you see that being the, the realistic view of what this Baylor offense could be? I think there's a possibility when you look at all that guard talent. You know, it's the the number one thing and easiest way to have a really efficient offense if you're not named Gonzaga is to have a backcourt that is capable of putting up 
a lot of points and putting them up efficiently. And when you look at Adam Flagler, you look at LJ Cryer coming back, Keontae Georgia is going to look pretty good in, in metrics with how highly he was ranked as a recruit. Dale Bonner wasn't the most efficient guy last year, but he was a freshman. You know, he's going to get more time. And so you add in Langston Love to that formula and everything, all of a sudden you're looking at a, a backcourt group that can go five or six players deep and and really have a chance to score the ball at all those different positions. I think what's going to be really interesting for Baylor is – what do we know about what kind of improvement Flo Thamba is going to make or is capable of making? Because obviously you don't usually see huge improvements from a guy who, who is coming back for, for a fifth season, right? You don't, you, you kind of figure for the most part, rightly or, or wrongly, you figure that that guy kind of is what he is at that point. And so Thamba has been sort of a, an efficient guy, but but somebody that obviously you don't really run your offense through. Is that still going to be the case next year? Is he going to be somebody that, that Baylor can drop the ball down to and, and expect to get two points? And and then how does, uh, how does Bridges factor in, the West Virginia transfer? And so I do think there's a chance Baylor has a, a terrific offense. I think looking at teams across the country – if you look at what Gonzaga still has available if Drew Timmy and Julian Strother come back, I have a hard time seeing any team being better offensively than that team, but I don't think that Torvik projects those guys to come back. And Torvik certainly didn't project Razier Bolton coming back to, to Gonzaga, which was something that, that came out earlier today. And so I think if Gonzaga does return it, it's two remaining guys that – that are testing the waters. I have a hard time picking any team having a better offense than Gonzaga is going to have next year. When I look at, at Texas, I think, you know, we've seen a lot of hype for like TCU to be uh, one of those contenders, but I see so much talent coming back on this Texas team, whether it's Marcus Carr, Timmy Allen, Christian Bishop, and then adding on two top 20 recruits in the 24 seven composite. Um, you bring on the transfer of Tyrese Hunter, Really, the big question I have is, is how do they make that all work? Because a lot of those guys are guards. How do they make that all fit together? But um, does that addition of Tyrese Hunter, because I'd imagine if you were you know, tearing out either the top teams in the Big 12 or the top contenders, however you want to view it, Kansas and Baylor would be in those top two spots. Would Texas be in that same tier with those teams, or would they kind of be on a drop-off in the next level with, say, your TCUs and Texas Techs? You know, I, I think... You know, TCU is probably closer to to that tier than, than maybe a lot of us realize with all those guys coming back and everything. But I do think that, that Texas is probably in that uh, in that same rough grouping when you look at the guys that they bring back. I, I think a lot of people maybe are misinformed is maybe the wrong way to put it, but they look at Chris Beard a, a certain way. And I, I get it because, you know, when you watch Texas Tech play and, and now Texas, it's not fun to watch them play. It's it's not fun to watch them play offense. It's not fun to, to watch them, you know, attempt to take charges and, and potentially throw a little extra in there as well. But I think that when you look at, at Beard's most successful Texas Tech teams, when you look at the team that went to the Elite Eight and then the year later, 
when they wound up going to the national championship game and finishing a regulation basket away from the national title, they were teams that had returning pieces. And I think that that's been such, that's been a huge challenge in Beard's last few seasons, both at Texas Tech and then with Texas, is he hasn't really gotten those guys to come back, right? He's been hitting the reset button seemingly every year. And people look at it and they look at last year's Texas team and they say, well, my gosh, with all that transfer talent, why weren't you better? And I think it's a fair question from a talent standpoint, but I think we found the main thing in college basketball right now is continuity. And you look at the national champions and teams that make it a long way, they're teams that have been together for a while with a lot of players that have been together for a while. And that's something that Beard hasn't really had. And when you look at what you were talking about with Marcus Carr coming back, Timmy Allen coming back, Christian Bishop coming back, Dylan DeSue announced today that he was coming back. All of a sudden, you know, Texas does have some transfers who are going to plug in. They have some five-star talent. I think Dylan Mitchell may be a day-one starter because of the way that he defends and the kind of athlete he is. He could carve out a Zaire Smith-type role with that team. But generally speaking – I think the reason to buy Texas is the fact that they do have those returning guys. How is Hunter going to work out? I think the only person who can really answer that is Marcus Carr because I think the team works if you have Hunter as as kind of your primary point guard with Carr sliding off the ball just a, a little bit more. But at the same time, that has to be something that Carr is willing to buy into and really embrace. And if he does, I honestly think Derek Texas is a team that could be top five, top ten next year in terms of how good they'll actually be rather than what they will be in the preseason. Yeah, I think you could probably make a case with, you know, Baylor, Texas, Kansas, TCU. I mean, Texas Tech has kind of showed that they're always just going to kind of be around right now with, with Mark Adams, Chris Beard, whoever, that those are five teams that legitimately could make a Final Four um, the one that's interesting to me here is West Virginia is ranked 16th on Bart Torvik. <laughs> I, knew, I knew that I knew that that one was coming up. I, what's going on with that? Because I, I I I forgot Trey Mitchell had transferred over to them. Outside of that, like you know, you lose Sean McNeil who transferred away. Taz Sherman graduates at the end of the year. There's not a lot of recognizable names coming back for this West Virginia team. Um, are you buying into West Virginia being, let's say, even a top 25 team? No, no, I'm not buying into West Virginia being a top 40 team, probably. And, you know, and maybe, maybe even, you know, dropping a little bit off of that. I do think there's an outside chance or so, and maybe not outside, but that they are a top 50 or top 60 team. You know, Emmett Matthews is coming back, right? He's transferring. He left West Virginia for, went for a year and now he's back. So there's technically a little bit of, of continuity there, but otherwise you look at the Torvik sheet and it's okay, but who are these guys and what have they done at West Virginia? And that's, we were just talking about the continuity with regard to Texas. And I think that's one of the things that, that West Virginia doesn't have. I mean, kudos to, to Bob Huggins for, for turning the roster and maybe finding guys that, that might be able to fit together and kudos to him too, he really filled out his center group after last year. And I think you and I talked about this where we felt like with Sean McNeil and with Taz Sherman and Malik Curry and, 
and some of those other guys that if West Virginia had a good center and a center, the type of center West Virginia had usually had, whether that, you know, was, was whoever West Virginia would not have been a bad team last year. They, they probably would have been pretty, pretty solid and maybe middle of the pack in the big 12, they didn't, and that was their single biggest flaw. Well, now they're a lot better at center. When you look at Trey Mitchell, when you look at what they got out of junior college, et cetera. And so I do think Huggins did, did a really nice job of, of filling out that roster. There are some interesting pieces. It's just so hard to project a team with so many new pieces to fit together well. And so I think that's my biggest hesitation with that team is, yes, they do have some talented players, but you're asking all of these guys to, to fit together and come together in a way that we haven't really seen these transfer-heavy teams do in their first year when they're all together. Uh, if I gave you over under .5 Big 12 teams to play for the national title game, which we have seen the past couple of seasons, and you know if we want to count 2020 with Kansas and Baylor, we'll make it three straight seasons. Uh, do we get another Big 12 team playing on uh, Monday night in April? I think so. Uh, I I really do. I, I think I, I have Baylor outside of, of the top two, but we've also seen that the number one thing you want to want to have is, is a team that has a great backcourt. And when you look at at Kansas and potentially the the guys that, that Kansas could have coming back if if a certain somebody makes a decision and the way that uh, the way that they fit together when you look at the challenges TCU is going to present for a lot of teams, the defense that Texas Tech is going to play, and then Texas, I don't, it's not necessarily, Derek, that I would be able to sit here and say, okay, I pick this specific team to reach the national title game. It's more that I think the Big 12 is going to have a lot of bites at the apple with, say, four or so teams that are top 10, top 12, top 13, whatever type teams. And when you have that many, you're, you're going to have a chance to, to get some high seeds, have chances to make runs. And I think that the Big 12 has some teams that have a chance to be pretty dangerous in March. He is Kevin Flaherty. You can check out his work at 24-7 Sports. And uh, you can check out some of those things with the Big 12 and looking into Bart Torvik. We'll get into some of those. I want to get into some of the numbers projections for KU with, with some of the point totals, which you discussed in another piece on 24-7 Sports. We'll do that next or uh, in a couple weeks from now. Kevin, I appreciate the time as always, man. All right. Thanks a lot, Derek. All right. That's Kevin Flaherty. Check out his work, 24-7 Sports. I'm Derek Johnson. Two hours down, one to go. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk. This is FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, KLWN.com, the KLWN app. Depend on it.